You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. My name's Austin. Uh, I've been going to Free City for about five years. I'm in the Davis Miller City Group. And, uh, and I serve on kids uh, and setup team. So uh, sign up for one of those. Uh, today's scripture is from uh, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2, verses 17 through 26, and chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. And that is on page 519 in the uh, Bibles under the chairs. Ecclesiastes 2:17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to, the, to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work comes, come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, thank you, uh, God, for your word to us, um, that you would allow it to speak into our lives today. Uh, I pray that you would open our hearts to be receptive to the words um, that we hear um, and that they would be from uh, from you and uh, guided by your your Holy Spirit. Uh, I pray that... uh, you would be in this place, in this building, in this uh, community, 
of uh, Central Middle School, Lord, that we would be a light to our neighbors, um, that we would show them the love of God, and uh, that your love would be uh, an outflowing of our heart from our hearts, from the words we hear today in the sermon. God, I pray that um, your love would abound uh, in this in this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors uh, here. And uh, if you're with us for the first time, and we're just glad you're here. Uh, if you're with us for like uh, the hundredth thousand time, we're glad you're here. Um, and uh, we're, gonna, we're just going to hop in. Um, and so let's, let's look at that very first uh, few words. So I hated life. I mean, what a great way to start. I hated life. Uh, life was terrible. It was awful, horrible, um, horrendous, appalling, bombastic. That actually means ranting, which is what I'm doing. I used it online to the source. But like, what a way to start a, a morning. I looked at all that I had done and all that I had worked for and the fruit from my life, and I hated it. Like, I know that's how a lot of you guys felt about your uh, March Madness brackets. I mean, who saw that Kentucky thing and BU? I mean, who in, I mean, wow. You know, back, back in the 1900s, when you had to uh, write a bracket out on paper, what you would do is just print more's off and just change it and then act like, yeah, I called all those first round picks. So I hated life. Like, if we're, like, Solomon's view here is less than optimistic. Like, he's working through different ideas, if you've been tracking with us, different ideas of what can give your life meaning, what you can put your effort to, what will bring satisfaction, what will make you feel safe and secure, like, what will leave something behind that you think has meaning, and he comes to verse 17, and he actually says this a lot in Ecclesiastes, I hated it. I hated it. And like the question, like to start off, like, I mean, we've only got a few words in. Like, do you ever feel that way? Like, have you ever gotten into a relationship or a relationship didn't work? Or have you ever like, you know, tried to work really hard to accomplish something and it didn't work or it did work and you got to the end of it and you thought, why? What was that for? And like you may not have used those words because that's kind of a Debbie Downer thing, I hated life, but you felt something deep inside of you. Like there is something wrong. I thought this would give me something more. I thought more of that would satisfy and it left you empty. You know, right now, uh, all our uh, partners, you know, so we, we have different partners that we work with in church planting and denomination. And, and right now they're sending all their pastors like don't give up books. Um, I mean, literally, like I got one just this last week. It was uh, something like, I mean, it basically was like, don't quit and hate your life. But it had a different title, uh, Leading on Empty, I think. But they're given books because they're like, oh, man, the brokenness and despair, like it's palatable. People can feel it. Things that we thought would satisfy, relationships that we thought were strong, things that we thought would last, didn't. And I know, like, right now you're thinking, like, why, why, are we, why are we even looking at Ecclesiastes? This is terrible. 
Like, like, isn't the Bible about hope in a broken world? Isn't it supposed to make me feel better? Isn't it supposed to encourage me to keep going, live for what's right, do what's good? And the answer is sort of. Like, sort of. Like, that's not the full picture. The Bible's not just supposed to, like, tell you something that's good or tell you how to live. The Bible's also supposed to tell you about the predicament that you find yourself in, that you might actually perceive reality right, that you might actually look inside your humanity and see something lacking, that you might reach up, and what we're going to look at at the very end, take the hand of God. That you might take your hands off whatever you think is going to satisfy and take the hand of God. And so it starts off, so I hated life. And if you remember, you know, Solomon, he's asking what in life is worth living. And he's like, is there anything worth doing in the dash that's going to be on my tombstone between my birthday and my death day? If this is it, is there anything that will last, anything that will give meaning, anything that will sustain me? And that's why the next phrase after verse 17, so I hated life, is so important. So look down at it. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was so grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. And so what, what we're, if you're with us for the first time, like what is positioning itself is if there is nothing after you take your last breath or close your eyes for the last time, if there is nothing holding all things together, if there is nothing beyond the sun or above the sun, if this life is all that there is, there is nothing that will sustain you. Everything will fail. Now, as Christians, we, we, we have hope because this world was made with purpose. So everything has purpose and meaning. And we get to the end of the story in, in, in Revelations 21, and we have Jesus himself not delegating it out to angels. Jesus himself wiping every tear away so he knows of every tear and every shortcoming. And the promises of God that he worked all those things out for his glory and for your good will one day make sense because everything has meaning. But without Jesus, without a God who saw all things and is beyond the sun and above the sun, pulling all things together. If you're in the Bible reading plan not too long ago, we read Colossians. He is before all things and he holds all things together. Without that, we're going to find meaningless and meaningless and meaningless. And if you actually, this comes before an idea. Look at verses 12 through 16. And so we covered this several weeks ago, uh, man, and I, uh, you know, I mean, I so appreciate Ethan preaching and Ryan preaching. Uh, it gives me a chance just to be a church member and come and, you know, drink a lot of coffee. It's great. Um, and I didn't spill it. Um, I know that sometimes happens. Clean it up if you do that. Uh, but it was just great. But so it's been a little while since we looked at these verses, uh, verses 12 through 16. But what Solomon is coming off is he's like, I'm going to try to live wisely, I'm going to try to do the right thing, wake up early, work hard, read the classics, study for the test, like find a job that I enjoy and that matters. I'm going to invest in a 501k. I'm going to buy life insurance. Like that's when you know you have grown up. You think about life insurance. Do I have enough coverage? And all the experts say, no, you don't. But I mean, I mean, I just can't afford to buy any more. And so like you start to do these things, you make decisions. I'm going to live I will never eat anything that is sold at a fair. Sure, a fried Twinkie sounds great. You will regret that later. 
And the older you get, the quicker you regret it. I mean, so like you make all these right decisions. I'm going to live wisely. And then in verse 15 and 16, he says it in really two different ways. He says, if you live in wisdom, you still die and everyone's going to forget you. And then he says, or if you live like a fool, you might die earlier, but you still die and everyone forgets you. And then we get to verse 17. So I hated life. You know, I don't know if you noticed, but what Solomon's doing is he's wrecking every Enneagram's dreams. Like, I mean, you know, he's, you know, people are like, man, live for accuracy and wisdom. We'll figure it out. And Solomon's like, nice try, you fives. There's no meaning with anything. Or, or, or then he says, man, I'm just going to live for fun and pleasure. And I'm going to laugh. And he says, oh, you sevens are idiots. Get a job, you know. Or, or, or then he, he speaks directly to me. I'm going to live for accomplishment and get stuff done. I'm going to win. And he's like, oh, I got something for you threes. I mean, I got something for you right now. And I'm leaving eights out because we're all kind of scared of eights anyways. And I'm pretty sure Solomon is an eight. You know, he's like, That's an, that idea is dumb. I did it. And so he's just crushing dreams. But he's asking if this life is all that there is. When you close your eyes for the last time. And there's nothing. If this life is all that there is and there's nothing above the sun or beyond the sun, what will give your life meaning? And we come to kind of one idea, we say it two different ways. What about accomplishment and meaningful work? And, and so we see it. I actually had this broken up and we, you know, we worked these things out and we were going to do an accomplishment. And then in a couple of weeks, we were going to do chapter four work. But I was like, man, they're saying the same thing. I mean, that's what happens in despair. You say the same thing over and over and over. And so we merge this together. Like, is there meaning in meaningful work and accomplishment? And so earlier in class, Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon furthered his pursuit to find happiness into the search of pleasure. And he gave a bulleted list of all the things that we think if we have more of them we'll be happy and he talks about all the things he says like man maybe we could have fun experiences and he gets to the end of that and he says man i found an emptiness or maybe i'll give my life just to to pleasure and drink and food and sex and he says man i got to the end of it and it was meaningless and then he goes about all these things to accomplish and there's this huge list and he says i accomplished so much and it was like trying to grab the wind it just went through my fingers there was something i wanted beyond the thing i was working on and so this week we see this despair just kind of further in work and accomplishment. And I just have three points. And so first we're going to ask the question, like, what do we want from work? Like, what do we actually want? Like, we want something. And then we're going to say, what does it actually give? And that's actually a really short point, And it's so depressing. It's funny. I mean, you're going to laugh. And then the final thing we're going to ask, what can we have? If we take the hand of God, the pierced hand of Jesus, what can we have in all of these things? So let's, let's take a look. 
First question, what do we actually want from work and accomplishment? And I, I think this describes what we actually want is we want what we call root idols. And sometimes we describe them. And so an idol is anything that you put higher than God, anything that you want more than God. And I think it describes the satisfaction that we want, that the significance we want and the security that we want, that we actually want work and accomplishment to give to us these root idols, but it doesn't work out. So look at verse 18. He says it another way. He says, I hate all my toil in which I toil under the sun. And so he's very, very clear. He says, I threw myself into work. I accomplished a lot of things. I made a checklist and I checked one thing off after another and I hated all my toil. It's not that I was disappointed. I actually started to despise my efforts to bring it along. And say, he says, I thought it would make me happy. I thought it would give me meaning and purpose. I thought that if I accomplished big things, if I helped others, if I built something that could last beyond, I thought that I would matter. And then in verse 17, it says, but it failed me, so I hated life. In verse 18, it says, I hated all of my toil. And so if you look just ahead, you know, we already covered this, but in verses, uh, like starting in verse 4, we see a list. In verses 4 through 8, we see a list of all the things he accomplished. And so it says he built houses and parks, he grew vineyards, he grew forests. It says that he amassed silver and gold, and he had servants who had servants. And so he grew the empire literally like a real empire, not figuratively. He grew the business, he amassed wealth. Like, I mean, you might feel a sense of accomplishment after working hard in the backyard on a weekend and saw them and be like, hey, nice try with your little square foot garden. I mean, way to go. I mean, you're going to get some salsa out of that one. He's like, I built vineyards. I built forests. And at the end of it, I actually hated all of my toil. At the end of it, he found an emptiness. Because building more was about so much more than just brick and mortar. It was trying to reach through the endeavors of your hands to take a hold of something that is hard for us to name. But I'm trying to give it these names of satisfaction, significance, and security. And and so let's just look. He says the problem over and over. The problem is you leave it all behind. So look at verse 18. Again, it says, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all of which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And so he says, I put all my effort into this for what? I have to leave it behind. I built houses, cities, parks, and it all is left after me. It doesn't enter me. It doesn't change me. I leave it behind. He says the same thing. Look at verse verse 20. He says, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Like that's one of those verses that literally never makes it on a a a coffee cup. I mean, it never says, give your heart up to despair. I mean, I gave it up to despair and all the toil of my labor under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill, look, it says it again, must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil from it. 
this also is vanity and a great evil. Like, why is it so grievous to work so hard and accomplish so much just to leave it behind? And the answer again is because we want something more. We want something more from the endeavors and investment of our life. They're important and they're there, but we want something beyond it and we're striving for it. And when it doesn't satisfy, all of a sudden the midlife crisis sets in. The existential crisis of does any of it matter? Do I matter? Will it do anything? Can anything be accomplished? And this is where Solomon is. See, he's describing like we use work to fix a gnawing sense of loss. A gnawing sense of loss in our souls. We use work and accomplishment to try to cover the fact that we feel inadequate. We know There is something wrong inside of us. We know that there is a shortcoming. And we fear that if someone actually sees all of that, they won't take us by the hand. But they'll push us away. And so let's look at these things. First, satisfaction. We use work and accomplishment to try to gain a sense of satisfaction. Like, you don't just want to make money. You don't just need money to to buy clothes and cars and houses. We don't just want clothes, cars, and houses. We want certain types of clothes, cars, and houses. And we want certain types of those things because we think they say something about us. And so if you have to turn the page, go to Ecclesiastes 4.4. It says this. And so Solomon makes this assessment. Why are people working hard? And he's already said, because, man, we want something inside to work to do something in us. But he looks inside and he sees something else. And this is what he says. This is what he sees in verse 4 of chapter 4. He says, I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor, this also is vanity and striving after the wind. He says, why we work so hard, why we want to drive certain types of cars, or why we want certain types of clothes, is driven out of an envy. Do I measure up? Am I worthy of what they're worthy of? Is there something in me that is praiseworthy? Do I measure up? And he says, that's inside all of us. Am I as good or as worthy as there? And so Solomon says that all of our efforts are driven out of envy. Like if you look deep enough, you see an envy inside of it. And sometimes like, like some envies are a little bit more classy than other envies. I mean, some envies are like, man, I want to be known as someone who works hard. Or I want to be known as someone who does the right thing. Or I want to be known as someone who leaves something behind, who's responsible. But he looks underneath all of that and he says, there's a satisfaction we're seeking and it's driven by envy. We don't just want a house for a safe place to rest at night. We want a house to fill a restlessness in our soul. We, we, we don't just want clothes to fit and keep the cold out. We want them to warm the cold uncertainty that we feel inside of our hearts. Like striving and work and accomplishment to gain lasting satisfaction. Solomon says, it'll be like trying to grasp the wind. It will fail you. He says more won't be enough. And people like Solomon who get to the very top of their field know this more than anyone else. 
See, the danger is we, we just believe, man, I, I know I got this much and it didn't quite make me feel right, but there's so much more to gain or so much more to accomplish. So we say, man, if I just purchase this kind of house or if I just have this kind of job or if I you know, make this kind of impact in my field or this kind of recognition, if I just get a little bit more, then I'll be satisfied. But the people like Solomon who get to the end of it and accomplish so much and find an emptiness, they say, more won't satisfy So first he says, we're trying to get a satisfaction that doesn't work. It's just driven out of envy. But then he he looks to significance. Like we use work and accomplishment to make a contribution, to make us feel significant in life. And like, isn't that true? Like if you took philosophy 101, you know, didn't you have like the parable of the the starfish, you know, where all the starfish are up on the seashore and they're all going to die and dry out because nature is cold and mean and doesn't care. And the little kid is picking up starfish and throwing them into the sea and the bitter old man comes around like, what are you even doing? They're all going to die. And he's like, he says, you'll never make a difference. And the little kid says, I made a difference for that one. And then grabs another one. I made a difference for that one. And the answer would be, sure, maybe. Or you might have just thrown the starfish to be torn apart by some crabs. You know, you don't know. I want to make a difference. That's inside of us. Like, to work and to try to make a difference. And look, we see some of this described. Look at verse 14. So you have to back up. Uh, to chapter 2. Verse 14, it says, The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same thing happens to all of them. Verse 15. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise... As the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. And so Solomon says, it doesn't matter how many starfish you throw back into the ocean, it's not going to make a difference. They're all going to forget about you. We don't even know if starfish can remember. He says, the impact that you think you're going to make, it'll be forgotten. He says, if this life is all that there is, and if there's not a God weaving all things together, that when he entered this world, he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, holding all things that puts matter and meaning into everything. If it's just this life, then you have to be honest after the hundreds and hundreds of years or the thousands and thousands of years that follow you, it won't matter. And so he's pushing what in your life will give significance. You know, we we want work and accomplishment to enter us, to make our lives matter. We We want to know that there was a difference from all that we did. We want to know that there's something beyond this that satisfies, that is significant. You know, I was thinking about um, accomplishments that, you know, changed the world. And uh, I was thinking about, like, uh, you know, the first reliable car engine. 
Carl Benz, you know, Mercedes Benz, you know, he made the first reliable two-stroke engine. And like that changed the world. But now we could just maybe argue that he melted the polar caps and killed all the polar bears. And so maybe it's his fault. Is that a significant change? Or think about like penicillin, Alexander Fleming, he invented penicillin, but maybe MRSA is his fault and we should blame him for that. I mean, like what kind of difference will it make? If we had years and years and years, like we want to matter, we want to make a difference, we want to contribute. But this says there's no remembrance. Everything dies. Satisfaction. And there's nothing wrong with seeking satisfaction. Significance. And there's nothing wrong with significance. But what Solomon is saying is we want something out of what we do that's more than what it can give. And then the final thing, and this is quick security we use work and accomplishment to secure our lives we want to feel safe but there's so many things that are outside of our control you know we we make wise investments but then an army invades and those investments go down or or we we work really hard but then gas goes to five dollars a gallon There's so many things outside of our control. We seek health. We wake up early or some people wake up early and work out. I mean, you know, some people do that and then cancer comes. So many things outside of our control. And so then look again to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. One page over in verse 7. He says again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, and yet there is no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. Do you want to know how a lot of families are lost? Striving and work and accomplishment to find satisfaction, significance, or security. Do you know how how a lot of families are broken up? Striving to, to buy the right kind of house that your family might thrive in, but it ends up being a really big house with just a lot of empty rooms. You know, Solomon prophetically describes us. You know, I I grew the business to buy the bigger house to share it with no one. I, I, I gave myself to the office and drove everyone around me that I said I was doing it for. I drove them away. You know, Kinsey and I, we, we did a lot of student ministry and there are things that we never heard. We never heard parents who kids were graduating say, man, I wish I would have worked more hours when my kids were growing up. I would be so much further in my career and that would be satisfying. We never heard that. You know, we we never heard a student say, gosh, I wish my dad would have skipped more of my games in that embarrassing car. I I, I wish he would have worked harder and driven like car that he always, you know, who I hear killed the polar bears. But I wish he would have done that because that car that he always showed up to all my things was so embarrassing to me. Or, you know, things that we heard a lot of, I wish I would have worked less. 
I was running after something that I thought I was doing it for others, but there was a gnawing sense inside of me. This part is like under the breath. No one ever says this. There was a gnawing sense inside of me that I was doing it for others, but I was doing it for a sense of security and a sense of satisfaction and a sense of significance. Like there's things that we just never heard. See, work and accomplishments promise satisfaction, significance, and security. But this says over and over, it passes through you. You will leave it all behind. No one will remember. All die. And so work promises something. And Solomon's just asking us, can we be honest? Does it give what it promises? What do we find? And now number two. What does work and accomplishment actually give? And th- this is so depressing, it's funny. I mean, look, look at verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22. It says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which, the toil, which he toils beneath the sun? And so he asked the question, what do we get from all the work? What do we actually get? What do I have in the day, at the end of the day, at night when I'm thinking about it? What do I actually have? Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in night, his heart does not rest. And so what do you get from work during the day? Pain and vexation means disappointment. What can you expect work to give you? Pain and disappointment. Like that is a great job fair. Come work for us. We'll fill your day with pain and disappointment. But we offer dental, so it's great. He says, what do I have? Every day that I work, what can I expect? It's going to be pain. It's going to be grueling. It's going to hurt me. Like literally and physically and emotionally, it's going to hurt me. What do I expect at the end of it? Disappointment. I'm going to fail. They're all going to laugh at me. They're going to write me up. You know, some sort of performance enhancement plan. I mean, pain and disappointment is what you have to look forward to. And then at night, what do you get? You get like anxious restlessness. Anxious, you can't go to sleep because you're freaking out if tomorrow will just be painful or if it'll be painful and disappointing. Like, that's awful. He says, I accomplished so much, but what did it actually give me? I found pain and disappointment and I found restlessness. So we medicate with sleep aid and nightcaps and we binge watch Netflix and we smoke to cope and we do all kinds of different things because every day we're wanting something else out of work, but we find pain and disappointment and restlessness. Like Solomon is not a happy camper right now. Like what do we want from work? We want more from work than it gives. We want it to fix an inadequacy that we feel on the inside. We want work to fix us, to make us measure up. We want us to matter. What do we get from work? It says disappointment and restlessness. It masks our restlessness with striving for a moment, but it passes through us. And at best, we leave it all behind. What do we want out of work? We want a sense of satisfaction, a sense of security, a sense of significance. What do we find? Man, we find disappointment and restlessness. Like it haunts those things. But now the final, what can we have? 
if this world is not all that there is, if there is a God beyond the sun and above the sun, and that God entered in that we could actually take his hand, what can we have in work? And this is going to say in the gospel, we can find joy from the hand of God in what we eat, in what we drink, and in all the works of our hands, even when it brings disappointment and pain and worry. Like, it's really incredible. Solomon says that enjoyment in resting and working is from the hand of God. Look at verse 24. He says this, and he says this like four or five times throughout Ecclesiastes. He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. And so he says, that is actually possible. There's a way to hold these things, that you just find joy in the things themselves, but that you can see through them, and they point to something great. And so we've come to this several times because Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes comes to it several times where it says there is so much joy. Like he says, there's actually joy in in food and it can be enjoyed. Like God could have made just an amino acid shake that just supplements your body with what you need. But he made the world delicious. Like you can cook fish and it is good or you can wrap it in seaweed and it is better. Like he made it that way. Or, Or he made drink good. Like, he wasn't, like, freaking out when, like, he wasn't like, hey, the, the, the grapes in the barrels, you're letting them go bad. You know, what's going, oh my gosh, what are you all doing? Like, he wasn't, like, he made so much meaning in all of these things, and he put so much good, he wasn't befuddled. God also made work good, and it can be enjoyed. Work is not a byproduct of the fall. You were created to work. You were created to what we find in the New Testament and whatever you do to do it for the glory of God. Like there is coming a day, it's not just now, but there is coming a day in heaven when believers who love Jesus will work and it will be like the most amazing thing. He will look at you and, you know, you artistic types. He'll be like, man, go over to that galaxy and create a symphony for my beauty and my majesty. Let's see how big we can do it. Let's just blow it up. He'll look at the foodie types, like let's make the best coffee, the best food that we could ever do. And there's a worship in that now like i am definitely out of a job like no one is going to come to my services like there's going to be like a retraining program there i'm out of a job but doctors you're out of a job too because i mean you you won't need you but there will be joy in all of these things and if you take the hand of god some of that joy and meaning can be yours now Verse 24, it goes on to say, this also I saw, look at the phrase, from the hand of God. The enjoyment that we're looking for is a gift from God, not a striving to be made or to be gained. It's a gift from God. Verse 25, it says, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And then look at this description. For the one who, hit, who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But now there's a contrast. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. 
And so he gives two categories. He says that there is a sinner and he's always chasing, always trying to grab. Someone who doesn't take the hand of God. He's always trying to grab more to fill a satisfaction inside his soul. He's always looking for more and it's like grasping the wind. But then this phrase, but the one who pleases God can find joy and wisdom and knowledge, joy in their doing. And so the question is, how do I go from a sinner to pleasing God? Because both of those would be, there'd be a striving. Both of those, there's going to be a working. Both of those will have to put off pleasure to go to school or work the menial job to get to the other job. Both of those will make decisions about saving or investing. Both will make decisions of what to do in loss and brokenness. But he says, there are two very different outcomes. One is striving after the wind and one finds joy and wisdom and knowledge. So how do you go from sinner to pleasing God? And the answer is the gospel. But look at verse 25. Like in verse 25, it's really hard to translate. It says, the one who pleases God. And the problem with that translation, it's not necessarily wrong, but it sounds like this. I have to strive and work really hard to please God, and then I can have the joy that I want. And all you've done is you have baptized a sinful idea that I can obtain security and satisfaction all by myself. You've just, you've just baptized it. It's still striving. But this could also be translated, not the one um, who pleases God, but it can be translated, the one whom God is pleased with. And so the, the one whom God is pleased with can find joy and rest. And that sounds altogether different. Either way, it says that there is a way to make God pleased with us and to make him look at us and to have a response toward us. Like we could have joy and rest in our work and in our eating and in our drinking. And we wouldn't have to strive to prove or to validate or to earn our worth and value. From God's hand, you can have both work and find real pleasure in it, and you can have rest and find a peaceful solace in it. It's like saying this, like, in one hand, your work will find contentment if you take the hand of God and if you're striving. In the other hand, your rest will find renewal in taking the hand of God. And this is the exact language. So turn the page again to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and look at verses 5 and 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. And so let's look at these, these elements. So first, it says the fool folds his hand. That's like saying no hands on work. That's like saying, I'm going to find significance in everything that Solomon started with. I'm going to find it in a certain type of party, in certain type of relationships, in these kind of vacations. I will find what I need to fix me in resting, in not working. And it says this is like eating his own flesh. Folding the hands means no hands on work. And we're tempted to seek pleasure and worthwhileness in that. <clears throat> and then it goes on to say this. There's also a way to go two hands full of toil and striving. And two hands mean two hands on work. And we're tempted to seek security and satisfaction and meaning in our work and everything that we can accomplish. And we keep working harder and harder. And he says, this way doesn't work. 
every generation has a different view of what work will do. Like, like the baby boomers. Like, I felt like the predominant view of work is, man, we need to get all that we can. You got to have this kind of car. You got to have this kind of vacation home. And then we'll be satisfied. The millennial view. I got to have work that just like comes from my heart and fixes me and is expressed of my goodness. Like, I don't want to actually work. If I love my job, I'll never work a day in my life. Like, we, we believe these type of things. It's really just care bears, like heart, you know. I mean, and so we believe these kind of things. And it's an idolatry of work. One is, what can it give me? The other is, what will it do inside of me? And like, I, 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 I miss me. I'm a bitter exer. I mean, I'm just like raging against the machines. I'm like, I don't want to do it. I hate this, you know. Um, but it carries belief. From no hands on work, rest and pleasure is what's going to satisfy me, to two hands on work, I got to get all that I can get. But it offers another idea. Look at verse 6. Better a handful of quietness than two handsful of toil and striving after the wind. And so this describes like a hand of rest, a hand on work. But it's already given us the secret. This is from the hand of God. See, in the gospel, you can have the hand of God. Because of Jesus, God has already, God is already pleased. He's already pleased with you. And he wants to enter into every area of your life. Because Jesus' hands were pierced on the cross, you have access to the hand of God of God. When you think about doings and accomplishment, is your sin more toward no hands on it? I'm going to find satisfaction and hobbies and rest and leisure. Or are you more toward, man, I'm going to get all that I can get. And the gospel begs us to see the crucified hands of Jesus and the resurrected hands of Jesus. Working to make God pleased with you it hasn't worked. As eternity laid up on your heart, it hasn't worked. Working to find security or satisfaction in the opinions of others in that relationship, it hasn't worked. Accepting the pleasure of God through the person of Jesus is the only thing that builds a foundation that you can now see this life as broken, but has created good to point us to something even better, to point us to the God of the universe. Have you taken that hand? Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, it, it comes down to the pierced hands of Jesus. It comes down to Jesus who entered into this life and went to the cross and died a substitutional death that we could have the pleasure of God. It comes down to a resurrected Jesus, a bodily resurrected Jesus who can promise something beyond the grave. And it comes down to, will I take that hand? Or have I taken that hand? Every week we, uh, we come to communion and we have a couple different directions on it. But coming to communion is a reminder of that hand. It points us to the hand that was pierced, the hand of God. 
And so the way we take communion, if you come forward, is you start on the bread side, and a piece of bread will be broken for you, and a proclamation of this is the body of Christ broken for you. And then you'll take that bread, and you'll dip it into either the wine or the grape juice. The wine is in the ceramic uh, glass, and then the grape juice is in the glass glass. And remember that Jesus' blood was spilt for you, that it was all done by him, that God has offered his hand to you. And whatever you're seeking, there's a guidance and a leading. God has offered his saving hand to you in the person of Jesus. But it's a reminder, I've got to make a decision about who Jesus is. I said at the very beginning that, that you know, the Bible is only sort of about like, Hope and only sort of about, you know, motivating you to a better life. The Bible is very actually about raising the dead to life. And that's found in the person of Jesus. You can also take communion by going to the back information table. We have individual cups uh, of grape juice and gluten-free crackers. But there's another movement that just says, man, I need prayer. And so behind the black screens, um, there'd be people with lanyards and they're there to pray for you. And it might just be this. I mean, I have been trying to find satisfaction in work and it hasn't worked. And the only thing it's earned for me is despair and broken relationships. And that is a prayer of repentance. I'm trying to do something to get something that only God can give. Say as little or as much as you want. And man, just let him pray for you. Jesus, Lord, we need you. And in whatever movement that we do, even if that movement is, I haven't really decided who Jesus is yet, and it's just staying put, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. You're good. I pray that we would see the hand, the pierced hand of Jesus, the hand of God that we can take a hold of, that we can grasp. And Lord, we would find you. In Jesus' name, amen.